from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. On this episode of Newt's World, Senator Mike Braun was elected to the U.S. Senate representing the state of Indiana in 2018. He's from Jasper, and before coming to the Senate, he was founder and CEO of Meyer Distributing, a company he built in his hometown of Jasper, Indiana, that now employs hundreds of Americans across the country. He's joining me today to discuss the Braun Budget, a plan to defuse America's inflation bomb and unleash prosperity, which is his proposal in the U.S. Senate to reduce our national debt of $30.58 trillion. Remarkably, every American citizen's share of the national debt is a whopping $92,000. Last year, the U.S. government spent a total of $562 billion on debt service, basically interest payments on our debt. That's over half of what we spend on national defense. This is a topic I care about deeply because when I was speaker, we passed four consecutive balanced budgets. I know it can be done, and I know that Senator Braun is a key player in helping us get there. So, Mike, let me first of all thank you for your leadership and for joining me on Newt's World. Well, Newt, my pleasure to do it. This has been a passion of mine because in that stretch of 37 years when I took a little business where literally I turned the lights on each morning, off each evening, had to account for everything for it to work out. You get real good at a few fundamentals. In the business world, it'd be always keeping your overhead low, the exact opposite of what we do in government. 
It would be sticking your neck out and taking a few risks on new ways of doing things. We hardly ever do that here other than sticking our neck out to grow and create more government. And then it was about understanding the basics of finance, that you've got to make a profit and then you need to reinvest most of those profits. And in the long run, things fall in place in your direction. Everything I just said is pretty well the opposite from where you at least had it for four years. Ever since the Gulf Wars, which we put on the credit card, the other side of the aisle said, hey, if they're doing that, we're going to double and triple down, which is what happened in the Obama administration. And then after that, I think it's been an equal opportunity kind of effort on both sides of the aisle in that unholy alliance of since everybody's spending, let's even start borrowing it now to get our latest and greatest ideas out there. And we roll over to them to get everything we want on defense, which I think is the most important thing we should do as a federal government, but I don't hold it sacrosanct either. I think it needs to be budgeted. You need to do audits. We've gotten away from all of that and our 30 trillion in debt and our fearless leader says, hey, we're gonna have a trillion and a half dollar deficits for the next 15 years. We're not gonna even try to attempt anything it puts future generations $45 trillion in debt, and that's probably understating it due to what they assumed about inflation and interest rates. Shameful. It makes perfect sense that you come at this from the standpoint of a businessman. And I didn't realize that before you did Meyer Body Company, you actually co-founded Crystal Farms, which later became one of the largest turkey operations in the Midwest. What was that experience like? Well, that was the second business venture I got into, anxious to do something on my own. And it was interesting because back then it was kind of a rough and tumble market producing turkeys, mostly done on open range. This interested me because they were doing it in a semi-confinement way. So we learned about it, was a part of it. And like many businesses, they never shoot out of the gate and all of a sudden you're watching your bank account balance. It was tough for five years. We hung in there. But I did take a risk to get in the business in the first place. I managed things frugally throughout the five years. My partner, who actually ran the operations, we did what we needed to do to get into a point where we were successful. In that fifth or sixth year, the market really turned. We were low-cost operators, paid off about two-thirds of the debt. I sold my interest a few years ago to his kids and grandkids. But we built it from three buildings to 15. And it was another example, if you follow a few principles, even in something like that, which is not easy, not an easy business, we were successful at it. So you went from producing turkeys to the Meyer Body Company. What attracted you to Meyer? Well, that was my paycheck. That was my living that I had to make. The turkey business was a sideline investment. Later, along with the turkey investment, I started investing in timber ground and farm ground and did that incrementally and used those same principles again, learned it, learned about those businesses. And that turned into a business that I now have in a family LLC that I started back in the mid to late 80s. And then the Meyer Body Company was my first entrepreneurial attempt. It was a struggling business. Think of this, in May of 81, I went there. 
I left probably the best job in my county at our local kitchen cabinet company. It was $26 million in sales then. It's now $3.2 billion. And I was hired to maybe have an opportunity to run it someday. We wouldn't be here today, Newt, if that had occurred. But I left there, went to this struggling little company. Right before the farm crisis hits, I'm there and the wheels fell off in terms of the business. Interest rates went from 10 to 18%. I was just talking to Art Laffer earlier today, and we were reminiscing about those days and what it took to wring inflation out of the economy. Well, we made it through. I started dabbling with something new in that business. Actually became a used truck and equipment dealer, started those two new businesses. This took 17 years, still 15 employees, but I had a tiger by the tail. From that one location in 17 years and 15 employees, we have 70 locations in 40 states, and it's grown year after year, average about 20% a year. We've never borrowed any money, and opportunity comes our way every day because we live by those simple principles I told you about earlier. Do you have sort of the broad principles in written form where people could learn them? Not in written form, because the last time we talked about healthcare, I remember you said, Mike, you ought to write a book. And I will do that someday because I'll say things like, only save money to spend it. Only borrow it to invest it. And I said it rather quickly to a tree farm seminar about 15 years ago. And they said, Mr. Braun, slow that down. I want to li really listen to what you said. I said, this is the thing you ought to remember most. Save your money to spend it. That's consumption. Only borrow it if you're going to invest it. You get a return on it. And that probably resonated along with get a credit line when you don't need it. When you need it, you won't get it. That's a great line. And then... What I told you earlier, I reinvested every penny in that entire 37-year stretch. I kept my overhead low, like I remember in that old facility that I was in for 17 years. And Newt, when you run into 9-11, which was our first scrape with something happening that was an outlier, 08, 09, again in COVID, we had our greatest growth because we had a healthy balance sheet. Our competitors stumbled. And that's when we were able to shoot ahead based on those simple principles. Well, we're going to talk through your budget plan today, but I want to give you an open invitation to come back. When you put together the principles that you wish the next administration would apply, to just literally take right out of your practical business experience, forget all this public administration, school of government baloney, and say, what if we actually ran the federal government as a business? Here's how you would think about it. Here's what you'd do so that every single department, the next president could say, I want you applying these principles to how we're going to turn this thing around. I think you'd be a major contribution to what America needs to do. We'll definitely do that because as we talked about in healthcare, I did that 15 years ago, made it consumer employee driven, poured transparency into the system and put skin in the game. And we've not had a premium increase in 15 years. So those are the things you can do. And that could be a model for what we could do to fix health care and incorporate those principles into government paid for health care as well. I came out of a college teacher background and I was trying to understand these kind of principles. I studied with Peter Drucker and with Edwards Deming. And 
taking those principles and applying them to government is how we were able to balance the federal budget for four straight years. You've done it for real. It's in your life. You know what you're talking about. And I think you could become one of the great intellectual leaders in moving us back to a healthy country again. So I'm really fascinated. So when you left the private sector, ran for office, and won the Senate seat, what kind of lessons did you bring with you that you've already been applying? So that was probably the hardest undertaking, because when you come from no political legacy other than 10 years on a school board and three years a state legislator, I learned a lot about name ID and about what it would take to win a statewide race. A lot of those entrepreneurial kind of approaches applied in running my campaign. I paid attention that Trump, whatever you think of him, represented half the country upset with business as usual in D.C. You guys were ahead of your time in the mid-90s when you were tying into that. I said there should be a market for someone that maybe doesn't come from the farm system of politics. That was the initial underlying strategy. Ended up running against a couple individuals that had been around politics for a long time as U.S. reps, and it worked. Came right up through the middle talking about practical issues, talked about what I did in healthcare. Newt, that was so unbelievable to most people in the political sphere, they thought I was making it up about being able to solve problems like that. But it did resonate. And then you get here, which is the biggest business in the world. Before COVID, about four and a half trillion a year that we spend. And pre-COVID, only bringing in 3.5 trillion. That is not a good long-term business plan for future generations. And then what do we do? We run into the biggest healthcare crisis. We did overreact in terms of shutting the private sector down nearly completely, then bragging about how we brought it back with all that government stimulus, most of which was not needed, and has sown the seeds of where we are today. But all of that has parallels to that running a business. In state government, they have guardrails of balanced budgets by statute or amendment. They run their operations more like a business. This place, you know, is driven by ideology and doctrine, not so much by the practicality of how you pay for things, how do you do it sustainably. That's the part that probably at this stage of the game could be hard to infiltrate into a culture that doesn't respect the private sector. The founders never imagined that we would grow into a behemoth of a government that has lacked and lost so much accountability to the people that vote for it and put it in place. And I hope that the time I spend here and with some of these ideas that will start to resonate before we remediate by running it into the ditch abruptly and severely. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats 
even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I think you're one of the people who is going to lead us in turning the corner. Listening to you is a little bit like listening to Rick Scott, who, of course, ran a big corporation before he became governor and then ran a big state government before he became a senator. And he has the same notion of, you talk to most of these senators and most of these House members, they have no idea. This is why I think your principles could be revolutionary. People have to have some kind of yardstick that they can cling to that helps them understand what they should be focused on. Otherwise, it's all talk. It's an important point because I realized when I got here, I've been involved in farming from all angles. Only two of us on the Agriculture Committee, myself and Tester from Montana, really know much about farming. And most of the senators on these committees are getting briefed by staffers that do the research that have had no practical experience in terms of what they're weighing in on in these committee hearings. Not to mention sticking your neck out, taking risk, 
you know, balancing budgets and doing all the things you've got to do successfully along with your entrepreneurial instinct and nose. So that is a big difference. Guys like me, Rick Scott, maybe a few others are the only ones that would have a clue on how to tackle something that has gotten this far out of hand and have the political will to do it and put the things into place that would create a framework for that prosperity that I think we can return to. It just have to be under a completely different type of federal government, similar to what you glimpsed for about four years. It's interesting because when I became a member of Congress, I realized that you have all of these really smart young people who have almost no real world experience, but they know they're really important because they're in federal office buildings and they go out and drink with each other and tell each other how important they are. I told my team from my time I was a freshman that your job is not to write a paper about a topic you don't understand. Your job is to find the best person in the country who actually knows what they're talking about and network us together. And qualitatively, the difference in the level of information was so unbelievable. And we need to get back to that. We have too many nice, interesting staff people with very limited experience and not enough connection with people who will get up every morning and make something happen. So I'm curious, you make a key point, which I totally agree with, that we don't have an income problem. We have a spending problem in terms of Washington. What pulled you into focusing on the federal budget and on balancing the budget? Because I think it's maybe the most important domestic challenge we have. It is. And geopolitically, Newt, I view China as our key geopolitical competitor over the near, mid, and long term. And I do believe as a country, they're probably thinking strategically and doing it as investors and probably a country that are inherently savers, similar to what we were coming out of World War II. Think about it. Had the highest percentage of debt of GDP ever, paid it off, and built the interstate highway system, the most capital-intensive thing we've ever done. And really, we didn't start putting things on a credit card until, like I mentioned earlier, the two Gulf Wars. I can extrapolate that and see how it's going to end up. And I always use the analogy of something that's a snapshot of where we're at now. It looks a little iffy, but if you get this and extrapolate it into what Biden just did, a $45 trillion debt, all of a sudden our interest rate goes up. We're now the second most indebted country as a percentage of our GDP next to Japan of the major economies. And the others, like Germany and so forth, have half of that kind of debt. Now, as long as you are a reserve currency, you can get by with a lot of stuff. But none of that, again, that's a snapshot, stays permanent over time. And we'll have difficulty borrowing money at a rate that's going to be affordable. With the budget that Biden has out there, we're going to have as much spent on interest as we do on either defense or discretionary domestic spending. So that's frightening. I'm a numbers guy along with, you know, knowing how to make things work. I view this as being like an enthusiast in a business to where you love what you're doing so much, you don't pay attention to the books. You get bad advice. And for as well as you might have done at whatever you started, if you don't know how to keep it on the rails financially, you go out of business. Here, it's different because you got the printing press. You are the government. You'll still pay the price in a similar way in the long run. Medicare trust fund bus 
in four years. We've known it for a long time. Actuarially, we've known Social Security. That goes completely bust in that trust fund in 10 years. That's when the wheels start falling off. So let's just, if I can go back for a second, this came up today when I was testifying at the House Budget Committee. If we're already spending $562 billion on interest payments annually, if the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, as they're almost certainly going to have to, what's that then going to do to our debt payment on the federal debt? Very simple. $30 trillion in debt. You raise interest rates 1%, that's $300 billion. So we're historically two to three points under interest rates, even in times of low inflation. We already, after that 10-year mark, are going to start seeing interest rates at least a point higher probably than what they are now, just due to the amount of debt that's out there in government, in the economy in general. Everybody competes for that credit. So we can't assume interest rates are going to go down or save us. And even if they stay at historically low levels like we have now, it's going to start crowding out all the stuff we do in the budget. And for every trillion dollars worth of debt that you take on, you've got a hundred billion dollars of new interest. And that's assuming a 1% interest rate. If it's 2%, just double that. That's how powerful the numbers are in terms of working against us. It becomes geometric in terms of challenge and it compounds itself into the future every year until you start putting a lid on it and turning it around. That is at least what this budget has done. It's taken the gimmick that has occurred since you've been around and taking discretionary spending, making it mandatory so you don't have to do the hard budgeting, the appropriating. And I'm moving back $375 billion and appropriators and budgeters figure out how we're going to diminish that into zero over 10 years. And that puts us in primary balance to where our deficit is only comprised of interest. That's about as easy as you could make it for legislators, appropriators, committee chairs, and ranking members. I noticed that in 2000, our national debt was $5,670 billion. It's now grown to like $29 trillion. 30.5, yeah. Unbelievable. What's ironic is in 2000, we were on a track to actually pay off the federal debt. Alan Greenspan, then the chairman of the Federal Reserve, testified publicly that they were trying to figure out intellectually, how are they going to manage the money supply if there's no debt? <laughs> you know, there was that brief window that it looked like it could actually be done. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. 
I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. A couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. You have called Biden's massive spending spree an inflation bomb that is going to go off. I agree with you, but could you explain that for our folks? Well, and it's already detonated because look back where we were. We were still structurally in deficit mode during the Trump economy. But what we did do with the Tax Cut and Jobs Act is we incentivized the supply side. Art and I talked about that earlier today. That had no inflation. You had demand and supply pretty well lined up. You were eliminating a few regulations before you'd add another one. It just was setting the stage, even raising wages in the toughest spots. Zero inflation other than a nominal amount. Now, when you try to address a problem that I don't think needed to be remedied the way we did, we should have never shut the economy down. But when we did, we spent $4 trillion, Newt, in one year in March of 2020. That then set the stage for some type of stimulus with some type of security blanket. And if we had let it there, I don't think we'd have inflation at near the level. But the political enterprisers took over after Biden's election. Remember, Bernie Sanders wanted 10 to 20 trillion split between their holy grails of Medicare for all and the Green New Deal. That got pared down to 2 trillion, the rescue bill. 90% that was spent on other wish list items, not COVID. And then the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, which had tangible asset 
value to some of it, but we borrowed all of that. The Fed accommodated it. So it was a monetary accommodation to fiscal stimulus that we're lucky we've got inflation not any higher than what it is. And when I look back when Volcker had to tame it in the early 80s, it took five years to get interest rates back down from 10, 11% to 2 or 3%. That's going to be closer to what happens here. And we won't be able to take them near as high as they did then due to all the inherent embedded debt in government, especially. It's interesting because the Biden people, and I noticed this today in the House budget hearing when the Democrats would talk, you know, Biden and his team would like us to believe that all of this inflation is Putin's fault. In fact, I think the other day, Biden said that it's Putin's price hike is hitting Americans hard. I mean, isn't it a fact that it is American domestic spending combined with an anti-energy, anti-productivity, anti-work bias? This is really a homegrown inflationary crisis. It is, and it has to do with the roots of how we doubled down in 2021. We should have never shut the productive economy down to the extent that we did to where that required $4 trillion worth of stimulus. I was very careful there. Treat the disease with respect. Don't kill the economy in the process. And now all that's been proven. I even got Fauci actually to say we won't use lockdowns anymore in the future. Hallelujah. But the inflation was not caused by Putin. Putin took the cue that we were shutting our energy industry and ascendancy down. And if we'd kept on that trajectory, we would have gotten through this whole thing to where he probably wouldn't have gone to war, number one. He couldn't have used it as a tool of leverage. And number two, it'd be a moot point. We wouldn't be groveling over in the Mideast asking others to produce more oil. So they tripped over one another in the Democratic debates. Any CEO of an oil and gas business, do you think they were bullish after seeing what they said they were going to do to the fossil fuel industry? It takes two years to ink a lease before something's flowing from it. You shut the Keystone XL pipeline down. And news is out there, there are spare refineries. There's one, I think, in Philadelphia, one in Houston. Nobody wants to buy them when the current mantra from one side of the aisle is we want to get rid of your industry in five to 10 years. Cheapest, cleanest fuel will win in the long run. Another principle of business, your short, mid and long-term goals aren't always necessarily going to be the same levers you pull to get to where you want to be eventually. You should have never taken away your energy independence, regardless of what you wanted to do based on climate in the long run. As I understand it, under the Congressional Budget Act, Congress is supposed to pass both a resolution and 12 spending bills every year. And the last time this was done was when I was speaker. So if the Senate Budget Committee fails to report a budget resolution by April 15th, any senator can introduce their own budget and receive a vote on the Senate floor. Is that a strategy you would consider? Well, I've not only considered it, I'm doing it tonight. So that's the reason I was able to do it. And it's due to that dereliction that it creates that opportunity. Rand Paul did it routinely before I got here. He did one three, four weeks ago. And since he's been the only siren out there blaring on it, I said, I'm going to do it too, because somewhat of a new kid on the block, I come from 
that entrepreneurial background, had a finance and economics education, mostly in the School of Hard Knocks, even though I did go to school for that too, I thought it might have a different ring to it. And yes, I'll do it every year to highlight where we're headed, which is the wrong direction for future generations, if we don't do our job here. And we haven't, Newt, done it in 10 years, and we really haven't done it all the way back to the mid-90s when you guys did it four years in a row. So you're introducing what you call a plan to diffuse America's inflation bomb. Could you walk us through what you think are the biggest things people should know about this plan? So every year when you run deficits, that's called fiscal stimulus. And the only time that should be done is from Keynesian economics is to do it counter cyclically. But I use that word political enterprisers. And the other side of the aisle, they are that. I call this place their cathedral and growth business. And they do it unapologetically. We sadly have become complicit in it. So when you run those trillion dollar deficits and you don't have pay-fors for it, that is a stimulus. The productive economy and some of the things from the Tax Cut and Jobs Act that we put in place in December of 17, that can counter some of that. Because if you're spending more and borrowing it, a tax cut would be a way that produces on the supply side to at least mop up some of that extra demand. And sometimes that even gets confusing because both would be considered in a Keynesian point of view of being stimulus. But at least it had its balance. And then the world economy, which is a more global one now, put a lid on cost push inflation for a long time. We single-handedly, in terms of how we address COVID here, kind of unleashed that evil out of the economic Pandora's box. And that's why this budget is designed to show how we taper that in over time to reduce the pain, even though it's been based upon bad behavior year after year, ever since the early 2000s. So this is sort of a wean us off the bad behavior approach. It is. That recognizes the system couldn't take the shock of going cold turkey. No. And any business would have the rigor of the marketplace and you wouldn't get by with a 10-year rebuild plan. Your competitors would have already taken you out by your bad chronic behavior. Here, this is different, and it was to get Republicans to vote for it. I hope there's not any that won't. And it isolates the whole issue to interest after 10 years, and it is going to expose glaringly how entitlements, the two programs, Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid, and some of the other mandatory spending that we now put in the category of an entitlement almost, we're going to have to look at them if we ever want to cover our interest expense and really get the country back to where it should be, where you had it back in the mid-90s. When you introduce this, do you think there's any Democrat who might have the courage to vote for this? No, I don't think so. I think because if they would, it would be hypocritical in terms of what their behavior has been about for a long, long time. And to be honest, I think it'll make a few Republicans squirm. And that's that unholy alliance I talk about. I think that was my term that I introduced in one of our luncheons about three years ago. And it was like 
silence when I mentioned it, but I think it resonated. I think it's important to recognize because when we developed the balanced budget, and of course, we were standing on Ronald Reagan's shoulders and we had a lot of momentum, we found that for an amazing percent of the country, it's a moral issue that the country believes that they have to balance their family budget, they have to balance their business budget, and that the federal government, the politicians ought to have to balance their budget. And actually, we got a fair number of Democrats to vote with us, partly because we listened to them about what they could and couldn't do. We worked with Clinton. I mean, all of the reforms of the mid-90s were sort of a Clinton-Gingrich bipartisanship because we had to pass something he would sign, and he couldn't sign anything unless we passed it. So we had a negotiating position that was actually pretty creative and pretty healthy. We spent, I think, 35 days together working on the first balanced budget. But it seems to me that as you raise this issue and as you explain in a common sense way, both the downside of not fixing it and the practical steps that would fix it, I think you're going to gain ground every single month. This is just a start, Newt. I'm going to, for as long as I'm in the Senate, keep harping on it because it is clearly for future generations, especially vis-a-vis China, who I said earlier, I think they've got more inherent investing and saving in how they approach things. We better be careful because you cannot keep doing this year after year and expect it to be a happy ending. You know, I hope we can come back and visit again on this because I think it's the key fulcrum for forcing people to rethink government. I mean, if you can always write one more blank check, then you don't have to think. But if you suddenly have real fixed limits and a real requirement to measure what you're spending, boy, everything changes overnight. Then you're thrown back into that paradigm of being a feisty entrepreneur that's got to not only be good at what you're selling, but you got to make ends meet in doing it, or you become a casualty, and you're going to get closer to where most of our local and state governments already roll. And the only outlier right now are the folks with the printing press in the basement and no political will in their job. You're exactly right. I want to thank you for joining me. I think you're on the way to something very big and very, very important. We will have a link to the Braun budget, a plan to defuse America's inflation bomb and unleash prosperity on our show page at newtsworld.com so everyone can review it. And I'm just delighted and I want to encourage you to keep going and to plan to come back and talk with us again in the future. You can count on it. Thank you to my guest, Senator Mike Braun. You can get a link to his proposed budget plan on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newtsworld, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.